life can be tricky, making us ask, what was that? Join host Jan Murray and her guests as they explore the that's of life. Welcome to Life After That. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Life After That. I'm Jan Murray, your host. Today, we're welcoming Melissa Stevens from Kilgore, Texas. She will be sharing her story uh, and her journey with her husband, Troy, uh, as they battled ALS together. So welcome, Melissa. I'm so happy that you agreed to join us here at Life After That. And uh, I just really thank you for being here from Kilgore, Texas. Thank you. Thank you. So as I said in the intro, Melissa is going to be sharing some about her life with her husband of 33 years, Troy, who passed away only April 11th, 2022. So just barely a month, uh, uh, just barely a year ago, once we are while we're actually recording this show. So Melissa, tell me something about you and Troy and tell me something about his health in all of those years before ALS came about. What did he do? You know, what was his health like? What was your life like before ALS? Well, me and Troy met in uh, 1988. Uh, we, we were married for 33 years. Uh, we actually met in my hometown. He was a country guy. I was a city girl. <laughs> um, so um, we were married in uh, June 24th of 1989. Um, we, we were married for a while. I had a daughter um, when I met Troy. Uh, we got married and she was seven months old when we got married. So we raised her together um, and we've had two boys um, together. Uh, so um, Choi was a very outgoing person. He was a country boy, like I said, he was raised in the country, hunting, fishing, um, very, very outgoing. Um, Sounds a lot like my husband. <laughs> <laughs> so he, I mean, that was his life, um, hunting and fishing and I mean, river um actually when um i'm not sure exactly what year it was but we had moved not too far from where my parents lived in um rye texas and um so there was a river down from where we lived which is kind of close to cleveland texas and he found his famous fishing spot even though he grew up he grew up on the trinity river he loved to hunt and fish and so he grew up on the trend on the uh i'm trying to think of the river um anyway it was a river that he grew up on and we lived close to the trinity river and that was his fishing spot that he became okay so that was his favorite very favorite so he loved the outdoors oh so very what did he so do what did he do professionally? Um, professionally, he worked in the chemical plant um, okay. in Houston, where all the chemical plants were. He was a uh, pipe fitter. Okay. And a, a, like a pipe fitter's helper, I think he was. So. so he was exposed to chemicals then? Oh, yes. Yes. I wonder if that was related to his ALS. You know, I'm wondering that or the actual, I've seen things on like rivers or lakes, yep. you know, and I mean, his whole life, I mean, he grew up on the riverbank, running up and down the riverbanks, camping, you know, with his dad. I mean, he was a river baby. Yeah. So, um, I don't know. Yeah. It's a, there's a lot of questions about environmental toxins and, and, and uh, chemical exposure also, you have head injuries. My husband had some concussions as a high school or junior high school football player. He had mm -hmm. 
uh, he was in the Air National Guard and took a lot of mm-hmm. vaccinations over all those years. He, we, we both grew up in uh, rural communities around mm-hmm. farmland. He grew up hunting and fishing mm-hmm. and uh, on football fields and baseball fields and swimming in the rivers that even after we were married, he was like, we'll never eat fish from the river because you never know what's in there, you know? <laughs> so it, exposed to all of that. And he was a huge uh-huh. hunter as well. So often lots of questions about how all these things ran together. So, but I don't think at this point in time that they truly know where any of this happens. I think, it, I think they'll eventually find that it's all these things combined. And then mm-hmm. you have some who have genetic predisposition for whatever reason. My husband was the third sibling. His since he passed away um, almost six years ago now, mm-hmm. uh, a sister has also passed away. So uh-huh. out of six siblings, four have passed away from ALS. Oh wow! So was his hereditary? Because I know we know it's gen. We know that there's a genetic component. Unfortunately, the genetic testing has not revealed what component that might be. The Mm -hmm. known mutations are not what this family has. So Mm -hmm. still a huge mystery for sure. That's why I was asking because, you know, we were worried about my boys, Mm -hmm. you know, with their dad, if it was hereditary. You would probably know of other people in the family Mm -hmm. before your husband. You would probably know of grandparents, grandparents, great, great grandparents, Mm -hmm. aunts, uncles, you would probably already know of others in the family who have had it. If there was a genetic mutation of some, see, that's what we were asking around his family. Maybe if somebody possibly had it because he did have a sister that passed away of cancer at 28. So, um, but we did ask the doctors and the doctors had told us that his was sporadic. Right. And the vet, you know, 90, I think it's 94% of ALS cases are sporadic. There's Mm -hmm. no real genetic link anywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, It's such a small percentage that are considered to be um, familial. Mm -hmm. And even those is still such a mystery. There's two or three fairly common mutations they've identified, but for our family, it was none of those. So mm-hmm. we don't really know where it came from. It has to be familial for four siblings of six to oh, have had yeah. it. We also uh, really suspect that his father, who passed away in 1986, and they thought he had another disorder, we now believe probably was ALS and was misidentified. Mm-hmm. Um, so somewhere there's a genetic link. We just don't know what it is. Probably will never know what it is or what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, he still has his twin brother still alive and his oldest sister still there. And as far as I know, they have no symptoms of it, mm-hmm. but it wouldn't surprise me a bit to get a phone call one day and be told that one or both of them has ALS because it's wiped out all the others. So yes, ma'am. my two wow. children are adopted and they're very glad they're adopted. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's really good. Yeah. So tell me, um, so he was a pipe fitter and he was in chemical. Did he ever suffer any other health issues in his adult life or have yes, any type we, of injuries? We, um, before me and Troy met, actually, he was in a car accident. Okay. So um, he was life lighted. So oh, wow. I guess like had he did have head injury. So, I mean, that would play a part in it, too, like you said. Um, yeah, traumatic, traumatic brain injury. I think they have found some real positive links to traumatic brain injury to ALS. And Mm -hmm. I think that just hearing about your husband working in a chemical plant makes me suspicious of a link there as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, But, you know, what do you do? It doesn't really matter right now to us when you're going through it. So tell me, tell, go ahead and say what you're going to say. Sorry. Um, not what I was going to (laughs) say. Uh, Sorry, I interrupted you. No, no, no. It was just, um, it was something I can't remember, but it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. If it comes It'll back, you can, just, <laughs> you can interject. So tell me uh, what happened or what started happening uh, that eventually led up to him seeking medical attention. You said you, you in our prayer, uh, prior conversation before we started the interview, you had indicated that 
he was possibly having some issues before, long before he was diagnosed. So can you kind of bring us into what may have been happening, but you never thought about going to the doctor yet, but just kind of what are some of those things that were happening? Okay. Um, prior to, you know, his, his diagnosis, um, way years before that, my husband has already been sick. He had, um, congestive heart failure. Okay. And he was a diabetic. So we made a lot of trips back and forth because of his being the diabetic that he was, um, you know, it would never stay regulated no matter what it would go up and down. So I really couldn't keep it regulated and it made him sick. Mm -hmm. So we were making a lot of trips, you know, back and forth to the hospital. And then on, um, one day I had gone to work and, um, my son was staying with my husband at the time. And my husband actually passed out, mm. literally passed out. So um, when I got off of work, I took him, you know, to the hospital because he came to and he didn't even realize what happened. So um, I took him to the hospital and that's when they had said that he had had congestive heart failure. So um, he wore a life vest for three months so they wow. could monitor his heart. Yeah. And that life vest went everywhere he went. If he was on the riverbank, um, you know, it, it went with him because he wore it. It was like a bra that you would wear. Right. And so he um, wore that. And um, then he would call me because when he would wear it, he was on the riverbank. He would, you know, he would get out of breath, couldn't breathe. And the machine was steady going off. And so, you know, it sends a, a message, you know, and it, it'll actually, if it goes off, a lot of times it'll, you'll have to push a button saying everything's okay. And if you don't do that, then it'll shock the heart is what happens. Mm-hmm. So um, part of that was part of it, I think, of the ALS, you know, on his breathing wise, you know, with the heart issues and, and um, the actual physical of him um, having heart issues and the breathing. Mm-hmm. Um, him and my son would go fishing because my husband was a, like I said, he was a cat fisherman and loved catfish and that's mm-hmm. how he fish. So a lot of times he would take like five or six fishing poles and put them out at riverbanks and he would watch those poles all night long from side to side mm-hmm. and check his lines and everything on the riverbanks. That's how he did was bank fish. And, um, so I got to where that he was actually like falling. He actually was out of breath, mm-hmm. um, which wasn't like him. Cause I mean, when he went fishing, he would take a lot of his tackle and a lot of things like that. So I got to where that my son had to do a lot of that and help his dad out. Yeah. So um, a lot of times when they were on the river bank, my husband would get sick. And, and like I said, the staggering, the falling, but prior to that, years before that, he always said, my muscles hurt. My muscles hurt. My arms, my shoulders just hurt. Can you please rub me? Can you please rub me? So I'd sit there and I'd rub him, you know, and give him a massage on his shoulders, especially his, his shoulders. Mm-hmm. And um, so we didn't think anything of it, you know, and we would tell the doctors, but they came back and had said that um, even his legs, like in his muscles and his legs were hurting too. And he would... He would literally take his fist and just like beat on his muscles because they hurt so bad. So we were telling the doctors that and they always came back. Oh, it's just having to do with diabetes that so they would put him on gabapentin. Well, we kept telling him his muscles hurts, his muscles hurt. And see, normally with ALS, unless you're having spasms, you won't have that pain. But Mm -hmm. I'm thinking with his congestive heart failure and the diabetes, both of those can cause all those symptoms too. And then any Mm -hmm. medication they give for those can also add to it. So Mm -hmm. I would say that his situation was fairly complicated. Um, Did he have the fasciculations, the movement under the skin from the muscles, you know, where it's jumping around? Oh yeah. When it, when it got later into it, before we actually got the diagnosis, we were seeing the muscles jump. Okay. Mm -hmm. In his arms and in his legs, we would see him too. 
When he was falling, was it because he was dizzy or out of breath or was it because he was losing his balance? No, he was losing his balance. Okay. He, um, actually, we have him on video where he had actually gone deer hunting with my son. And, um, you know, they were deer hunting at separate spots. Mm -hmm. And my husband actually fell and he couldn't get up. So when my son went over there, he kind of videoed a picture of his dad holding on to the actual tree limb, trying to get himself up with his legs because he uh -huh. had no really no control over his legs at that time. So he knew that something had definitely oh, yes. shifted and changed. Oh, yes. So yes. how long did that go on? Month, a year, week? Uh, probably um, a year and a half. I mean, not a year and a half, probably a year, I say, at least. What did you think about all this and it was happening? What what was your thoughts? Um, I really didn't know. You know, I, I mean, I knew something was wrong. And um, when he had the issues of taking and falling and he couldn't feel the sensations, you know, um, I would take him to the hospital and we were going to the same hospital. And then um, I found a neurologist. And we went to a neurologist and we talked to the neurologist and he said, well, I'm not really supposed to tell you this, but take him to Dallas, Dallas, is, you know, a big town and, mm -hmm. and Texas and um, take him to this hospital in Dallas and you'll get, you know, your answers. I said, because we are making too many trips to go back and forth to the hospital. Something is wrong. We need right. answers. Right. Every time you guys can't tell us what's happening, but yet he's still falling and not getting everything. any better. <laughs> exactly. Not getting any better. It just, it, you know, it's getting worse. So and the um, falls are so dangerous too, because oh, yeah. he could yeah. have had uh, traumatic brain injuries from that, or even yeah. could have hurt himself well, to the point of when dying he from would that. Fall, when he would fall here at the house and it was just me and him, I had to call my son sometimes to come over and help me get him up you know he would literally just call me when he would go to the bathroom and then he would tell me he fell you know so dangerous and, Falling balance, so dangerous. So. and out front too he had some tomato plants that were growing out on our front porch and it was going to rain and beat them down so he was trying to move them inside and he slipped and fell dead Oh dear. And um, so, I mean, was he able to work during this or had he already had to stop working? Because no, he'd already stopped working because he, he was falling. It was getting worse. And it was just, I mean, his sister, he actually worked for his sister. And so she actually, he actually fell in front of her. Mm. And then after that, he stopped working. So, um, was he able to get some kind of short-term disability or something? Or did this just devastate you financially? No, that's what I was going to talk to you about and talk okay. to the public about. Um, you know, when you get diagnosed as a, di a regular diagnosis for ALS, usually on Social Security, they usually shoot it up to the top of the line. Right. Well, on my husband's case, when we filed for actually Social Security, they denied him. What? Even with all of the symptoms that he had, they literally, even with the ALS symptoms and all the paperwork, they actually denied him for his Social Security. I have never heard of an ALS patient being denied. Yeah. And so um, after that, we went and got a Social Security lawyer. So I, I'm literally still fighting his case for him on his Social Security to get his disability. And this that's ridiculous. Going We're going on two years now already. I've never heard of that happening to an ALS patient. But they said that they went back from actually 2012. The lawyer was trying to go back to 2012 to see how actually all of this was taking place and maybe that all of his symptoms and everything that he was having possibly could go back to the ALS uh -huh. is what she's working on his case to see. I, I don't understand. I, I can't even imagine that they denied you. If you had a confirmed ALS diagnosis, how they even mm -hmm. denied that. I don't, mm -hmm. I, I don't understand that. That's inappropriate. That even goes against their own policies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't understand. Yeah, because, I mean, I've heard it, you know, from somebody told me that, you know, or I was reading on a post or something where somebody had said that, 
you know, once you get the diagnosis, man, it's terminal. It's considered like end stage renal failure. They usually, Mm -hmm. usually in less than six weeks, you're going to have it. I mean, we got it quickly as well. Now, Mm -hmm. Medicare is different. It takes Mm -hmm. longer. We were able to draw correlation for, I think, a year or more behind when he got diagnosed. So he was able to get Medicare fairly quickly. But I've never heard of an ALS diagnosed patient getting denied. And here you are a year out from his death and you're still fighting that? Yes. yes. Oh, my goodness. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. It's just, it, it, it's weird how it all works and plays. You know, you would think when they tell you, you know, you have ALS, you know, and, you know, you know, it's terminal, you know, and then yet it kind of broke my husband's heart when they had told him that he'd gotten denied because at the time he, he was physically able and he knew what was going on and what was happening that, um, you know, it, it broke his heart because he got denied, but they went back. And said, well, he didn't pay his health insurance stopped in 2012. And all these other times that he worked, he didn't pay in or something. But we pay taxes. So it didn't make no sense. But I don't know. They were going back to 2012. Well, I'm glad you have an attorney. I hope that they can do some good for you. That's ridiculous. Yes, ma'am. So tell me what, when you went to Dallas and you saw a neurologist there, what was their first impressions? Did they run additional tests before they diagnosed? Tell me what that what that part of your journey was. Okay, when we went to Dallas, um, we had made our first trip. Um, I took him to Dallas, and um, I think we stayed there a week. And they were running. They had told us when we got there that you can do. Um, they were. We did. Um, IV infusions for um, kind of like MS, but it they wasn't for sure. I, there was a name that they had called it, but I can't even remember the name exactly. I think I know had. what you're talking about, but I don't know the proper way to say it either. Yeah. And uh, so um, we did that for five days. We got IV infusions at the hospital for five days. And they said, well, if this doesn't work, then we'll have to go somewhere. You know, we're, we're leaning in a different direction and possibly that it possibly could be ALS, but we don't want to diagnose it just quite yet. Right. They always want to, uh, they always want to eliminate all the other possibilities before they diagnose yeah. ALS. Yeah. yeah. And so I said, okay, well, we're back here again with no answers again. You guys, we, we tried the infusions and they did not work because they said if the five days that he was stayed there at the hospital, that, if they worked, he would be able to walk out of there while he couldn't mm-hmm. walk at the time that I had taken him to Dallas. And so we got sent home and then um, we, uh, I think he, um, it, it was progressing more and more with him. So I said, we've got to get some answers somewhere, somehow, some way. So we went back to Dallas. When we went back to Dallas and he got put in the hospital, they said, okay, well, we're going to do biopsies. Oh, dear. Why didn't they just do a needle EMG? It would have answered yeah. so many questions. Well, they had done those, but for some reason, I don't know, they still didn't diagnose it as ALS. Mm-hmm. So they said, because I don't know how many, I think he had like three of those done. Wow. Normally, if you get a dirty EMG, normally Mm -hmm. that's almost always indicative of ALS. Maybe it was just unclear. Yeah. So I guess it was just unclear to them. I don't, I I don't know, but they just didn't want to make the diagnosis. Yeah. Yeah. And I told him, I said, we need answers. So I'm not leaving this hospital till we actually get answers. There's something Mm -hmm. going on literally. So they said, well, we're going to do biopsies. So they did a biopsy on his arm of the the muscles or tissues the Mm -hmm. muscle and then in his foot they did the nerve and they combined them together and that's how they we got our answers after that that is so my husband's father um before we got married in 84 and then right after they did that they did a muscle biopsy and a nerve biopsy in his foot Mm 
-hmm. which I remember that we blamed the nerve biopsy on him starting to fall. We said, Mm -hmm. okay, they removed the nerve and that's why he's falling. Mm -hmm. And um, then they put him on heavy steroids and then switched him from one steroid to another too quickly without weaning him off. And he wound up throwing an aneurysm and that's what killed him. Oh, wow. And it was after the two other sons that got diagnosed with ALS and then my husband that I asked my husband's mom if I could look at his his dad's records mm-hmm. I mean he had long died I said can I look at his medical records mm-hmm. so I started just perusing through those found where he'd had the nerve biopsy and all of that and oh, where they decided wow. that it was Guillain-Barre syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I found a diagnosis report where he had had an EMG. And the neurologist at University of Alabama, Birmingham, had written on that form mm-hmm. possible ALS. And right then I was like, his dad had ALS. He did not mm-hmm. have Guillain-Barre syndrome. Yeah. He had so ALS. Much, they're so much similar. That- yeah. And that's what we were told. We were told the same thing um, that that's one reason why we didn't get the diagnosis when we did, because there's so many Yep. with the symptoms that they have. There's so many diseases that fall up underneath that same category. Yeah. So what was so the nerve biopsy and the muscle biopsy is how you got your diagnosis? Yes, ma'am. So when that happened. How did that affect you and your husband? Did you know much about ALS or did you have to educate yourself on it? And how did you guys feel when you got that diagnosis? Well, I mean, we kind of, I mean, they had told us, you know, basically when he had a lot of the EMGs done, um, they had told us that it possibly could be, they were leaning in that direction, but we wasn't for sure. But we had to wait, I think it was like a month for actually the biopsies and all that to come back and get the report. Actually, I found out first before they even told us when, before we even went down there, mm-hmm. I, I researched his medical records because I had them online so I could, you know, check his, his records myself. Right. And right. I had gone on and got the diagnosis myself actually, before we actually went. But when we went there, we started going to the ALS clinic, the neurology through the clinic. I was about and to ask, did they line you guys up with an ALS clinic? After we went there and seen the neurologist, they had started us through the ALS clinic. Um, so we, I, I think they, uh, a month later, I think we went back to the ALS in Dallas. It was at the same hospital through the clinic. And, uh, went there but um you know my husband at that time um he went from actually when uh probably a year before when all that was taking place of him falling you know he was walking with the cane to help him and he went from the cane to a wheelchair to actually a a regular wheelchair Mm -hmm. and then we finally got him when we got through the ALS clinic actually got him a um chair the power wheelchair yes ma'am. yeah yes ma'am yeah that it was the als clinic at vanderbilt university in nashville mm-hmm. it was several hours from us but it's because of them we were finally able to get a chair mm-hmm. as well so um did they help you get any other equipment that you needed to to help you well um the power chair they wrote out a prescription that day when we actually got the diagnosis because i told them i said <clears throat> I'm transferring and he's sliding on a board mm-hmm. into my vehicle, you know, out of the wheelchair. And I said, I have to take him all the way to Dallas. And it's getting hard. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So okay. we, we, you know, um, we're going back and forth and they had wrote out the prescription. So I got a hold to the people on his chair. Um, and, um, which we had insurance, but the ALS clinic that we were going to, um, they didn't take our insurance. Mm. So, um, I mean, when we were going, we did it, you know, that I would just say, just bill me. So they would bill us. But, um, 
just like when we would go for his appointments um, through the ALS clinic, you know, you're usually there all day because you right. see the doctors, the counselors, you know, and it's exhausting. <laughs> yeah, it is. And especially after we had to drive two hours just to get to the hospital. Yeah, ours, like I said, was several hours away. Mm -hmm. We, I think we went to clinic mm, maybe three times mm -hmm. in seven years. My husband lasted seven years. Uh, it was just too exhausting. And once we had all the equipment that we felt like we needed, plus mm -hmm. we actually got on hospice really early in our journey. And hospice mm -hmm. provided a lot of stuff for us, too. So it, yeah. we decided clinic really wasn't worth it to us anymore. It was too exhausting for him. It was exhausting for me. It was hard to get him there. I'd had to borrow a van. Uh, just See, all I, had to do, I had to do the same thing, like going back and forth. I, even after we got the power chair, because he had the power chair, I had to go and rent a, a handicapped vehicle to get yeah. him in to get him to Dallas that we would go to Dallas. For. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough. So, so thinking about that, so how much did your life change after that diagnosis? You've got a chair, what other equipment, what was your day to day life like caring for your husband? Actually, um, I had to quit my job. I actually worked for my sister-in-law. So she kind of, you know, paid me as I still went, you know, um, helping us out. Um, I became his caretaker at home because it was just me and him. Right. So um, when he got his chair, um, he could not sleep in a bed, mm -hmm. not even a hospital bed. You know, the ALS is specifically for them, the chairs. So they're more comfortable for him. They were he would lay it up. back completely to either sit up or lay down. He slept in it. I mean, he yeah, never my husband got slept his in his or a lift recliner for a very, very long time because mm -hmm. it yes, was better for him that way too. Yeah. And I mean, and so it got to where that in our living room, because it was better because we had such a small house that he would put his chair in the living room. And then I had my couches and my couches reclined out. So that became my bed. Mm -hmm. because, excuse me because he um you know he just he felt more comfortable he was his body was in a lot of pain when he would try to get in a bed he just felt so uncomfortable losing weight you know he lost weight my husband never really mass. lost weight he kept his weight but uh, you know i hear a lot of pain in yours i Bill didn't have pain, or at least he didn't tell me about pain, unless mm -hmm. maybe he was in laying in a certain way or sitting in a certain way, uh, and something might start hurting then, or sometimes he would get the cramping, uh, that kind of thing. So um, what were the toughest parts of the disease progression for you? I mean, for us, I, my husband lost his voice early on and lost the ability to walk, which was mm -hmm. extremely difficult. So for him, losing that ability to communicate and move on his own was probably the hardest. And for me, I think all of the above, it was all so hard. And uh, I was really grateful that hospice actually came in to help with baths and showers because mm -hmm. I got... I. I couldn't handle it all on my own. And it was, you know, just me. My daughter was at home. My son had already moved off for college and she helped as much as she could. But there's lots of that personal stuff that's not appropriate for a 13, yeah. 14 year old girl <laughs> to help with. Yeah. So and there was times that she would have to close her eyes and help pull her dad up for me mm -hmm. because it was so hard. And mm -hmm. I sucked quite frankly, and work in a Hoyer lift and she was really great at it. So <laughs> she was a great help with that. Yeah. So how did you deal with all those day-to-day -day things? It was just you, you said, but do you it, was, it was just me. Um, every now and then, if I really needed, I mean, I had family, his mom lived five minutes down the road, his sister, 10 minutes, maybe, or, or, you know, not far from us. Um, so, I, I mean, I had the support if I actually needed it, but majority of it I did myself, you know, um, it got to where at the, uh, towards the end, um, 
we finally got when he got put on well actually um we went home health so um through therapy um therapy because they were doing therapy at home working his legs and his arms mm-hmm. the mobility to at least keep it going mm-hmm. and um so um we had a therapist come out um I think they came out like twice a week on therapy and massaging them, you know, and helping them. And, uh, we, they ordered a Hoyer lift so I could get them. I think when we were at the hospital, I told them, I said, I can't do this by myself. I need help. Mm -hmm. So, um, they gave us ordered a Hoyer lift so I can get them. And I told them I need one, you know, so I can get them in and out of the showers or in and out, of you know, onto the toilet. Right. So, um, I was doing all that. We had to kind of basically, um, knock out a wall in our, in our bathroom so I can, um, and put it in actually, because we had a bathtub. So put in like made our floor completely flat. So I could just right. push him up in there and shower in that way. And it kind of killed him that time because he really liked his baths. So, um, yeah, my husband, I mean, he, he had very oily skin too. So he Mm -hmm. really wanted a shower every day Mm -hmm. and it was very difficult. And I, Mm -hmm. his sister, actually the one that just recently died from ALS, Mm -hmm. her, she was an occupational therapist and her husband was physical therapist and they actually bought a shower, a reclining shower chair. Mm -hmm. Uh, and luckily, uh, with the, we had moved into a, handicap uh home and it had a large uh shower that had no lips so we could mm-hmm. push that shower chair right up oh, in wow. the shower. Mm-hmm. that made a huge difference i physically already had an injured back i couldn't mm-hmm. really do it so i was really super glad for the home health aid that came out mm-hmm. to help yeah. help do that so so well, you i had a little it- bit of help I did it periodically up until probably a week or two, actually, before he actually passed away. Uh Um, But um, once we went on hospice, you know, I got more help going on hospice. The the hospital had recommended us doing hospice. And um, hospice saved us. It really did. I mean, you know, a lot of people, I had already gone through hospice with my mom because actually, um a year before I lost my husband I lost both of my parents six weeks apart oh wow so um, I'm sorry yeah so um I you know and then I had to deal with my husband's passing but um so I I mean we were caretakers I was also a caretaker for my mom like on the weekends you know we I have so you'd already been down this road a little bit yeah so I kind of knew ALS is so different than other things though because Mm -hmm. of what it does physically what um did did your husband uh, ever lose his voice or his ability to eat or was he able to communicate and eat all the way through um actually about a week before um that we had been at the hospital um my husband um had aspirated a while back oh wow prior to that and um so um he got sick i think he actually got pneumonia after you know um aspirating yeah and we went when we went to the hospital then they had told us that he had had pneumonia and um so and the thing about it was was when i had to take him to the hospital because i had no way of getting him there I'd have to call the ambulance to come get him. And then we would go to the hospital. And Uh then, and then when we came home, that was our transportation of coming home too, was they would have to bring us home like that. Yeah. But um, he actually got pneumonia and um, probably about two weeks before Uh he passed away. Like I said, he had aspirated and, um, so when we went to the hospital, they're like, I think we really need to do a feeding tube mm-hmm. because, um, you know, he, they had already told us that on the testing that they had done on the swallow testing, that huh. it, uh, the, his muscles were getting very weak on swallowing. Mm-hmm. So 
that would cause him to aspirate. And so they had told me to do a thickener in his drink. Right. So that, that thickening we were, stuff. <laughs> <laughs> we were doing that. And my husband, I put it in his tea because he was a teaaholic. And right. he, uh, I can't do this. He told me, I can't do this. Yeah. And so I said, okay. So then we leaned more towards juices because I found some juices that he liked. And so we started putting in juices. Then after a while, he was just like, I can't do this. So then he had me stop. And I said, okay. So I think at that time is when he had aspirated actually again. And um, we went, you know, back to the hospital and they had said he had pneumonia. It had showed in his lungs and everything. And um, they had put him on oxygen. Well, no, they didn't put him on oxygen at that time, but he just kept hollering. He couldn't breathe, couldn't breathe and get that breath. And they're like, well, you know, it, it is ALS. You know, that's part of the ALS. Right. And um, so um, when we were at the hospital, they kind of winged him back down on the oxygen level. And then um, they ended up sending us home. But I had told him, I said, can you please send us home with oxygen? Can we get this? You know, and they had called in hospice at the time a week before, and they had actually done actually a feeding tube. So we stayed there. Um, I think it was 24 hours. So they could make sure that it ran its course, you know, right. and that he could, his body could adapt to the feeding tube. Right. And um, I think, I think that was more or less, um, I think he took it pretty rough. When he realized that he wouldn't be eating or drinking. That's you know, a hard thing. Feeding, yeah. The feeding too. Do you think so. maybe that is, was a turn for him? Did he, did he lose his zest for life after that? Or I think so. I think so. Um, because he was so much of an outgoing person and then he just knew that it was getting worse and um, not being able to do things on his own because it got to where that he couldn't actually feed himself. Uh, his hands would just not go up to meet his mouth. Right. So he could not feed himself. Um, so um, I think, I think a lot of that was uh, after we had the feeding tube and, and him catching the pneumonia. I think that because he, we did come home and was on hospice for a week. And um, when we came home, we were basically, um, uh, he was okay. And he was speaking but then it got to where he couldn't speak. It got really slurred. I would have to get up really like a faint whisper. So I'd have to get up really close to him to understand what he had to say. And then I, I couldn't understand him at all. Like a couple of days before he actually passed, I had, um, I even tried to get him to write so I could, you know, we couldn't do that. So sometimes I think he was getting frustrated because he couldn't get that out to speak to even let me know what he was right. trying to say. I mean, I did get at the very end, I love you, you know, and I'm I did glad understand you got that. that. But I, I, you know, it was rough. It's tough. I mean, my husband started slurring in the first year, and I think his voice was gone within two years. Other, He would try to talk, but we couldn't understand him. So he mm -hmm. actually used a letter chart. Mm -hmm. the point with his with the hand that still worked and would spell things and he was a terrible speller so mm -hmm. i was almost the only one who could make out what he was yeah. trying to say yeah. and uh we tried eye gaze with him but his eyes were affected by the als even though they say the eyes aren't they most certainly are in a lot of cases and oh they are they are yeah we could never get his eyes trained and mm -hmm. he uh in the beginning we had said no artificial breathing thing you know no breathing mm -hmm. no ventilator no feeding tubes we were not doing any of that but i think three years maybe three and a half years into it um his voice was gone other than just mumbling and he was choking a lot a lot of choking scares mm -hmm. and they finally said he can't pass the swallow test it's time for a feeding tube or not and he mm -hmm. wasn't ready to let go and I wasn't either. So we did get a feeding tube and I would have lost him at least three and a half years before I did mm -hmm. had we not gotten the feeding tube because he, yeah. he couldn't eat anymore. 
So it was an adjustment. And he, he loved, as he called it, he liked to fight his face. He liked to, he <laughs> loved it. And he loved his sweet tea too. Yeah. He, he loved to eat and um, he couldn't anymore. I would put stuff in his mouth and let him mm -hmm. taste. But sometimes he would check on that. So I really got to the point where I was like, no, we're not putting anything in your mouth. Mm -hmm. We're not doing the whole chew and spit thing because mm -hmm. the fluid is still choking you. Mm -hmm. So I bought him lollipops you can find lollipops on amazon that tastes mm -hmm. like any kind of food you want I bought oh wow bacon. i did not know that you did i bought bacon flavored i bought uh -huh. popcorn flavored whatever oh, i could wow. find yeah because uh, when when we had the feeding tube put in my husband had said well i guess i don't get deer meat anymore yeah, my husband you know, like deer, like, deer sausage was my husband's yes. My husband loved it. I made the deer steaks like chicken fried steak and he yeah, loved yeah, that. Yeah. So, I call yeah. it country fried steak. Tenderized, yes, fried yes. and covered in gravy. Oh, yes, yeah. yes, yes. And so Very he loved much. that. So it, that was his saying, well, I guess I just can't eat deer meat anymore, you know. So yeah, but, that's sad. You know, but yeah. it sounds like, I mean... Your husband, okay, he was diagnosed at 55 and he passed away at 57. So it's almost like he had bull bar on set, but yet you, you talked about his legs and arms. So mm -hmm. it's like this disease with him kind of was all over. It wasn't yeah. just concentrated above mm -hmm. the waist. He literally. Well, actually, actually he lost, um, it started in his legs. Yeah. That's what. And that's, his hip and huh. kind of moved upward, you know, not downward, upward. But his and it feet, moved quickly. Yes, very quickly. I mean, it was, I mean, I didn't know actually until, you know, I did my research on ALS and when they did the bucket challenge, it didn't even, I didn't even think about that. You know, I, I mean, there's a, a lot of people, I don't know if a lot of people's like me, but, you know, you mentioned ALS and you're like, okay, you know, but it doesn't make you think about it until you're your relative or anybody gets ALS. And even if you and think about like, it or you're aware of it, mm -hmm. you don't really understand it unless you exactly. walk in the shoes that we walked in because it is it is a yes. monster like no yeah. other. Yeah. Uh, and I, go ahead. I kind of, uh, you know, uh, my mom had dementia. So my mom did too and my mom just dementia. passed away right after and Christmas. And yeah. so, oh, I'm so sorry. And so, you know, I mean, I kind of, dealt with you know the muscle you know deterioration and all that like that and then when my husband got ALS then I felt like I was living it all over again because we were having to do everything for my mom like lifter you know I mean we did everything mm -hmm, same mm -hmm. thing I had to do for my husband you know and I just lived it all over again <laughs> you know just a different disease but the same you know right. muscle. so you've had the caregiver exhaustion more than once in a very short period of time. Yes. Yeah. So at the end, was he home or at the hospital? We were at home. We were and at what home. led to those final that um, final day or what led up to that? Did he have pneumonia again or what happened? Uh when we had gone to the hospital, um he had pneumonia and um we went home with oxygen and um like I said, we went on hospice. And so the hospice nurse would come out, you know, I think um, actually my husband's um, nurse that was a um, home health nurse, she was also through the same company hospice that we went under. So he got to have the same nurse as his hospice nurse. That's good. That's so important, actually. So he really liked her. So, um, yeah. but she would come out. But when we came home, um, actually, because the feeding tube, I had to learn everything on the feeding tube. So, yeah. and medicine wise, because, um, I mean, my husband was awake and he could speak a little bit, but it was getting as to where we, and he knew it. He knew his voice was getting shallower more. And he said, my voice is getting shallow, you know, more and more. And I don't know if I'm going to lose it or not, but right. So we went home from the hospital and, um, couple of days later um we were here at home and I was giving him um it wasn't actually I think it was morphine it was something to help him rest just to help him sleep because um of his breathing his breathing 
um, was getting shallower more, it was harder for him to actually breathe. Mm-hmm. And um, we had the actual um, oxygen turned all the way up. And he would tell me, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. And I was like, okay. So I get a hold to the hospice nurse and she would tell me, just go ahead and, you know, give him a well up his, you know, his that morphine should help with that uh, yeah. air hunger. Yeah. So um, I, she told me, she said, well, if he says it again, just kind of do like a fake, like kind of tell him you're going to turn it up, you know, and that way in his mind, he'll think maybe, you know, she turned it up and I can breathe better. But um, we had, uh, my mother-in-law had came over here to stay. And before that, prior to that, my husband, um, probably, I think it was about a week before he actually passed. He's always wanted a, um, a uh, hunting dog. So mm-hmm. we got a, what kind of dog is it? It's a bloodhound. So we got a bloodhound. And um, my daughter-in-law went to go pick him up, pick her up for us and came home and brought him, brought her to us. And he looked over at her and he said, oh, she's so pretty. And that's all I got, you know, but that was a, a couple of days before actually he actually passed. So um, that that was when his voice had really started going at that time. But um, so um my daughter-in-law was here and then she ended up leaving and um, going back home. And um, when she lived six hours away and my son was actually working six hours away, but we were keeping in contact with him to let him know how his dad was doing. And we would, you know, video chat with him and let him see his dad. Yeah. So he did, he did get to see his dad before actually passing away you know, because we put it on our big TV screen and, right. know, and, and so you could see. And, um, but the night that he passed or early into the morning, that whole day before he actually passed, his breathing was, you know, really shallow. He slept all day, you know, he didn't really wake up. I would do his feedings. Um, and then, um, my mother-in-law came to stay with me that night and it got five 30 in the morning and um, well, four 30 in the morning, she had left because she was tired. She just lived five minutes away. Mm-hmm. And I kept a pulse, uh, the pulse socks on his finger for his oxygen just to check it. And it was at 80. I think it was, you know, it Pretty was low. dropping. It yeah. was, it was dropping. And I, I, she said, well, I'm going to go home. If you need me, call me. And I said, okay. So I laid back on the couch and I was facing him so I could see him and I fell asleep. And so I got back up at five 30 and I looked at his pulse ox and it was at 32. Oh, wow. So, um, me not dawning on me, I guess, just because I don't know if I panicked or whatever, but, um, happened to go to the bathroom and come back and I came back. It was at zero. So in between, me going to the bathroom and coming back, he had taken his last breath. Yeah. I'm sorry. That's, no. It's just, it's, there's no, you know, you said you'd been married 33 years. That's exactly how long my husband and I were married. 33 oh, years. Wow. We so were he, almost yeah. to our 34th anniversary. We, uh, he died in late June and our anniversary mm-hmm. would have been in October. So yeah, so a lot of parallels wow. between your life and mine. Yes. Yes, <laughs> it is. It really is. Join us again in two weeks when Melissa continues her story and her journey with her husband, Troy, and how she's doing today.